Hello and welcome to Living the Present Moment with Dr. Joel Ying. Today's episode is recorded live on Wednesday, October 10th, 2018. On this series, I interview people of passion and purpose, doing interesting things, living the present moment. I'm your host today, Dr. Joel Ying, and I'm a physician, educator, storyteller. You can join my mailing list, visit the blog and calendar at livingthepresentmoment.com. That's livingthepresentmoment.com. Today's topic is thinking directions, and my guest today is Jean Maroney. Jean Maroney has a master's degree in electrical engineering from MIT. And after spending some time in engineering, her life took a turn and she got a degree in psychology from Carnegie Mellon. She's had hundreds of hours of training in Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication, techniques of body awareness, and Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. She started her consulting business in 1998, and she's helped experts from Fortune 500 executives to independent entrepreneurs to artists, writers, and even normal people like you and me. <laughs> she embarks with confidence on new and uncertain projects and helps people finish what they start. Her company is called Thinking Directions. You can find her online at thinkingdirections.com. That's thinkingdirections.com. I met Jean at a Toastmasters meeting where we were both trying to improve our public speaking skills. She is an exceptionally articulate and motivating speaker. And in one of her presentations, she talked about how she came to start her consulting company and the background of being an engineer. Her website will tell you that she works with ambitious individuals and teams who know that sharpening their mental skills will give them a performance edge. She teaches thinking skills that help to make better judgment calls, align motivation with intention, and help people cross the finish line. Our clients become better problem solvers, more confident decision makers, and more reliable and resilient self-starters. What a great website quote. Oh, thanks, Joel. Wanted... <laughs> You're welcome. I wanted to start today with a call out to all of my fellow nerds in the audience and one of your one of your notes to me described yourself as a recovering nerd. <laughs> yes. I was curious how you got started as a nerd in, of all things, engineering at MIT. I can't think of anything more nerdy. <laughs> yes, very nerdy, very nerdy. Well, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I mean, I love the focus of your show because living in the present moment with passion and purpose is so important. And I didn't have that when I was young, but I was very good at math and science. And mm. every person in my family has an engineering degree. And, you know, my grandfather went to MIT, and my mother went to MIT, and my sister went to MIT. And I actually, by the age of 12, had decided I was going to go to MIT. Oh, and my father went to MIT, did I mention that? Oh, and, wow. Uh, so, you know, when I grew up, MIT, I actually went to MIT day camp when I was five years old. We lived in, still lived in the Boston area. And to me, MIT was synonymous with college. And then by the time I was 12, I'd heard so many MIT stories, and I was good at math and science. I just figured, well, I'll be an engineer. I'm going to go to MIT. And I really never questioned that. I really never questioned that until, oh, uh, 15 years later, I would say. <laughs> Now, now I, I, having said that, I don't want to uh, – I, I actually loved going to MIT. I, I made some of the best friends there. Uh, I, you know, I went into electrical engineering because it seemed like it was the most practical thing to do. You know, lots of great mm -hmm. jobs in electrical engineering. And electrical – the really crazy thing was I went into electrical engineering rather than computer science because of some theoretical reason, like you had to learn more hard stuff in electrical engineering, you could always do computer science. Turns out I would have been way more interested in computer science. I don't know why I didn't switch <laughs> to computer science my sophomore year. But I, you know, stayed in there, did the thing that seemed like the right practical thing to do, all the way into my job uh, when I left school. And it was, it, it was after I'd been working for five or six years that I really figured out that although I was good at it, it was not really the career for me. Hmm. Now, what is a career in electrical engineering like? Well, it's, there's a wide range of things that you can do. So it's, you know, there are some people who are at the sort of the design end. 
So every electronic device you have, someone needs to actually figure out how to make the electronics work. And that is a, you, you need to understand what the building blocks are, how to, how to uh, hook them up so that they will work and deal with various things like, whenever you have a complicated, if you think a physical system, if you put too many physical things together, like think of the contraptions like in um, um, Back to the Future, remember the contraptions that the scientist had to make his mm. coffee in the morning? If you get that many parts working together, the chances of one of them breaking becomes very high. And if you want to design something like a contraption like that so that it works reliably, you have to not only figure out how this is going to connect to this, it's going to connect to this, it's going to connect to this, but how is the system as a whole going to work so that it works and it, it keeps working for thousands and thousands of hours. And so there are higher order problems. And so at one level, there are people who are actually trying to solve that problem. They figure out what can it do, how are we going to make it do it, and how are we going to make it reliable? And that's mm -hmm. one kind of thing, which is very fun. You know, they're puzzles. Basically, puzzle solving is what engineering is when it's designed. Um, and then at the other end, uh, where I was actually, it's more at the systems level where you're thinking, you're thinking much more about what do we want to do. The thing that I got into was uh, we had uh, – I worked at a company called Adaptive Optics Associates, and I worked on this very interesting technology called ground-based laser adaptive optics. Hmm. And it, what it does is it takes the twinkle out of stars, which – may seem very weird to you, but astronomers really want to take the twinkle out of stars because you can't see the stars very well because of the, the twinkle is evidence you aren't seeing them very clearly. And if you can, it's, it's caused by the air between you and the stars moving around and making it be not a clear path to see. So if you want to see okay. something very dim, you really can't see because of that. And Anyway, someone figured out someone had a great idea in the late 1950s that we could actually measure this and correct for it. And uh, starting with an idea, someone then has to figure out how are we going to do that. And that's not just an electrical engineering problem. That's a physics problem. It's an optics problem. It's a mechanical problem. It's a computing problem. And it's an electrical engineering problem. And uh, what I got interested in was in the sort of the system engineering part of it. How can, you know, how can we use certain existing technology to help to solve part of this problem? And it's more at a high level. It's more of a conceptual level of seeing what are the resources and how, how can we bring them to bear here? And then how can we explain to each of the engineers in each part what their part needs to do so that the, big, the whole thing works together? Now, I don't know if that... Is that a clear enough explanation to actually have answered your question, Joel? Well, I, I understand the design, the solving the puzzles. So the systems part is uh, we, have this, we have the design and we know we can do this. It's how do we implement it? Well, it's, um, it's at a high, it's like at a metal level. Like, uh, so let me be a little bit more concrete. So the particular system that I wound up being a system engineer for was one part of this big experiment, right? Uh, this big thing of, let, let me tell you how you take the twinkle out of stars. You shoot a laser up at the sky, and you make sure it's, you, you measure the light that comes back. And that light is twinkling just like the stars. But that light okay. is only one color. So you can actually, actually sort of capture that light make a measure of how it's twinkling. And then you can take a crazy mirror called the deformable mirror and you can really quickly change the shape of the mirror very quickly in real time to compensate for how that light is twinkling and use that to look out the telescope at all the rest of the things up there. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's it sounds a, complicated, right? That meta yeah, level of solving the problem. Right. Right, exactly. That's like the very high level. That's the concept design of the whole thing. Well, down below that, one part of that has to measure the, measure the twinkle and tell the mirror how to change. 
And that's what's called a wavefront sensor. And that has, you know, eight systems below it that all have to work together. And the, you know, there's, you need to understand, you know, it's people in the middle, the system engineers in the middle, need to understand enough about the overall goal to be able to translate that into requirements for their part and enough about the nitty-gritty details of how this uh, camera is going to work or this uh, computer uh, is going to work or this microcode is going to work to be able to make sure it's all going to work together. So you actually are kind of the glue that uh, understands the, the thing the physicists figured out that this would work. You need to understand that enough and you also need to understand the actual chip design at the bottom level. So you're like the, you're the integrator of the whole thing okay. Okay. because someone, no one understands everything, right? It's just <laughs> too complicated. And so what the system engineers do is they understand the key things at the high and the low level so they can make sure that the communication gets all the way through between those two wow. parts. Okay, now I get it. That's ah, actually so the best I've ever explained what I did. I have to say, Joel, I appreciate your question. <laughs> how did you, how did you, you said it took 15 years. What was happening over those years that led you to want to change? Well, okay, so I thought from the age I was 12. <laughs> so I didn't think about it much for many years, right? <laughs> I, I just, you know, I, I went to Skype. Did high school. I took the classes I needed to get into college. I got into. I did get into MIT. I went to MIT, got into a good program, got a master's degree, then looked for. Got got mildly wasn't interested really. I just did all the classes because these were the assigned classes, and I actually only got interested in anything specific in the in the uh, summer the the year that I was a graduate student getting a master's, where I actually worked on. Uh, some laser, another laser thing. It's called laser um, laser detection and raging. It's called lidar. It's you know you know what radar is, where you can find things by you basically send out a radio signal and you see where okay. it comes back. Well, lidar is you send out a light signal and see what comes back. And it, oh. they use it in like weather prediction, right? Because if you if you shine lasers up into the clouds, you can find out what kind of clouds they are because they reflect the light differently. Okay. And oh. so anyway, I got interested in lasers. It was like the first time I'd ever been interested in anything. So I got a job in this related field of this laser guide star adaptive optics. And that was fine. And, and just the interest in the problems was fine. But what happened, and I probably would have gone on, I thought I was going to work at a big company for the rest of my life. But what happened is I got working on this amazing project. And the thing I didn't tell you was, the laser eye star adaptive optics project that I worked on was actually the first proof of concept that ever got the thing to work. We were, this is in 1988, 1989. I was actually working out on site of the telescope in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And although the idea for this had come up in, I think it was 1957, the technology had not really existed. And the technology had just, chips had just gotten fast enough to be able to mm. do the calculations, to be able to do this. And we had this very specialized computer to do it. And I was on this team, and I wound up, the reason, I wound up being the program manager of this team because I was, I was a kid, I was 24 years old, but I was willing to go and spend time in Albuquerque. I was based in Boston, and I was willing to go and spend most of the year in Albuquerque. And none of the more senior people wanted to do that. So I was, you know, a hot shot smart aleck kid, whatever, and they kind of just threw me into the, threw me into the, into the uh, uh, cauldron, as it were. Cauldron isn't the right <laughs> word, but you know, they just dropped me in there, and I jumped in, and I wound up, unbeknownst to me, I wound up working with the person who would change my life. It turns out the, the leader of that project was a fellow named Bob Pugate who uh, physicist, PhD in physics, running what was called the Starfire Optical Range. And he was, the, he was a productive dynamo, 
a really visionary leader, and he's the guy who got us figured out, you know, at the very highest level how to actually get this problem solved, including like how to get the funding to get it solved. And it was amazing working with him. I don't know, have you ever worked with someone who just, they just got the most work out of you that you, Bob got more work out of every member of that team than we even knew we had. I've never worked so hard in my whole life. He was just wildly inspiring. And it was, and and we felt like we were, it it was a little bit like, you know, the Manhattan Project or something. No one had ever done this before. It had great potential. It was really important. We, We felt like we were on a mission. He really communicated that to us. And it was incredibly exciting. And I, it was the first time I'd ever really been excited about what I was doing. I mean, not at that level. And I looked at Bob and I thought, wow. I want to be like Bob. And mm-hmm. I debated, you know, should I, get a, should I get a PhD in electrical engineering? I actually took a graduate course considering going back and getting a PhD. And a couple things happened. One is that class really wasn't that interesting. I tried real, I worked really hard in that class, but it was not at all, it was pretty clear I shouldn't go back and get a PhD in electrical engineering. And the other thing that happened is we finished the proof of concept and then we tore everything down to do the second generation. And boy, the second generation wasn't nearly as interesting as the first generation. I mean, Bob was still Bob and Bob was still wildly excited. But I wasn't wildly excited anymore and I thought, wow, I want to be as passionate about what I'm doing as he is about what he's doing. And that really put me on a... It got me really thinking, okay, well, what, what is it? You know, I could see that to be a leader like that, you needed to be very personally passionate about the outcome. And that didn't seem to be in, you know, something closely related to electrical engineering. And, it, that, mm. and so that was a big surprise to me. And at the same time, I got very interested in Ayn Rand. I don't, have we ever talked about Ayn Rand? Do you know, do you know her at all? Yes. Uh, yes, uh, I author do. Of, we talked a little bit. Okay, but, but she's tell, the author uh, of, you can describe her. Yeah. She, uh, she's best known for, the two, uh, for two of her novels. She wrote Atlas Shrugged and The Fountainhead. And the way she described Atlas Shrugged, or, or actually the way she described her goal of her novels, was to portray um, man the hero, man as he could be and ought to be, the ideal man, and which is a thinker and a creator, and someone who really does have tremendous passion in in his life and for you know what he does in life. And at the same time that I was realizing that I was, you know, not that interested in electrical engineering and and wanting to have the kind of passion that I saw in Bob. I was reading her novels and getting very interested in that. And one of the things that she did in her novels, she also wrote a lot of nonfiction, she sort of opened up the humanities for me for logical thought. I, had, I never took a philosophy or psychology class as an undergraduate. Uh, and I just, you know, I took, I took literature and history. That was my humanities. That was the only thing I thought was worth taking in the humanities. I thought the rest of it was a lot of hot air. And which is a very, um, which is which is not fair in the big scheme of things. But that was definitely my attitude. And she kind of opened me up on that and made me see, wow. I mean, there are really important issues. You need to be able to understand ethics. You need to be able to understand uh, the epistemology, which is how do you know what you know. And uh, I realized, you know, I actually wanted to consider something in the humanities, and I spent about a year. Working, I was still working at the telescope, but I spent about a year really thinking about what was it I was interested in. And the thing I came up with, I actually was more interested in how you solve problems than in the problems I was solving. I was really interested mm. in the psychology of how do you use your mind. And the material that, that I learned from her about how do you know what you know tied into it. But I was really interested in the introspective part of how do you manage your mind? How do you actually um, use what you know? How do you figure out when, what you don't know? 
how do you how do you go forward when you're uncertain, and how do you deal with uh, you know the ups and downs? You, dealing with emotions is actually a huge part of being creative and being able to solve problems effectively, and it's that whole issue of how do you manage your mind to really be able to go out and create and live in the world that became my uh, I realized I was interested in it I decided to jump off a cliff because I tell you leaving a great paying job with people I loved and work that was you know important and leaving that to go to graduate school in psychology it really felt like driving off a cliff I'll tell you but wow. I uh, I haven't I haven't regretted it for one second. It was such an important decision in my life, and uh, I'm totally fascinated by this subject. And I, I really feel lucky that I've been able to make a career around what is so personally interesting to me. Hmm. I, I am fascinated by your story just in the fact that what we're good at is not always what we're passionate about, but we're teasing yeah. out what we're passionate about is, uh, I, I think, something that everyone reaches in a different way. And so I appreciate your story mm. about how you got there and how you made a leap from what you were good at into what you were passionate about. Because I think what we're passionate about, we, if we put the energy into it, well, we will be good at it. You know, it's, it's just one of those things. Yeah, well, we well even you know, better at it. <laughs> right. I mean, you raise an important question, and it's something that I've actually been uh, grappling with with some of the people in my thinking lab. Because I have a part of my program is the, uh, I, I, you know, I have a membership program where people can, uh, we have we have teleclasses or video classes now, actually, a couple times a month, and. Uh, some people have coaching, and some of the people are in trying to make this transition to what they're passionate about. And so much of the advice out there concerns figure out what you're good at. And mm. I look at that and I say, I'm great at administration. I'm great at math and you know science and analysis. And I, I actually was I was good as a technical writer, but the thing I discovered early in my current career is not so good at writing about like the things in the humanities, right, which are take a different kind of precision from technical stuff and mm. are written to a general audience, whereas technical stuff, you can assume that you're writing to other engineers and they're going to have the context, whereas if you want to write about thinking skills, you're trying to write to any adult and you have to really be able to explain it in terms that people can understand. Oh my God, I was not good at that. I've spent literally, <laughs> I, I mean literally, I really learned I wasn't good at that in 1990 and it's now 2018. I'm now pretty good at it. You know, it's like, I mean, I really spent 20 years on that, Joel. I, but because I was interested in sort of the managing your mind part, all that effort I put into learning how to write I also learned how to manage your mind and I was like doing, doing the basic research for myself on the problem that I was trying to solve and learning the things that I'm now teaching by teaching myself how to do that. I don't know if that makes sense, but uh, it, it goes to what you yeah, said. You know, you, if you know what you're passionate about, you find the things that you can do and you, you do those things and in the course of doing the things you can do, you learn what you need to do to take the next step. Um, so there's a balance. What, what you do now, I think you need to actually have some confidence about it. I think if you can't get success in the short term on your short-term goals, that's very demoralizing. So the trick is to figure out the short-term goals that integrate with the long-term goal so that you not only get that short-term success, but you see that it's building toward the future that you're passionate about that you actually get experience that what you're doing now is leading you, is, is actually in, here in the day you are living the life of pursuing your long-term goals, even though they may be very ambitious and this is a early, early stage of them. Mm -hmm. 
And I appreciate your story about how you, you know, got to what you're passionate about. I, I think about it now, as you talk about thinking about thinking, mm-hmm. of, of uh, really reducing the thing that you're passionate about to its bare bones because it, the possibilities that are open to us depend on where we are in our lives. And I really remember something that someone else said once. They said, do what you love or love what you do. And he mm. called it grandma wisdom because he got it from his grandma. Do what you mm. love or love what you do. And I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of urge to, like, to, to do what you love and, and, and you know, whatever you love, you, you, you do it. And, and, and it becomes so confining when you, when you think about your passion as too concrete. Like it has to be, I have to be the right. number one superstar in basketball. Yeah. <laughs> and if, if it's that limiting my vision, uh, that is like, you know, not even 1% of the population. <laughs> yeah. What do I do? Right. What is my alternative plan? Well, I can be passionate about more than one thing if I reduce my passion to not reduce it, but if I, I think of what my passion is and expand it into its bare bones. I, I might right. be able to find that in what I do or move what I do closer to that. Right, right. Understand it in some kind of somewhat abstract term. So you have a little mm-hmm. bit of flexibility, right? That, mm-hmm. um, that you, know, I, I, you know, I'm so non-athletic that I'm having trouble imagining what the one is for the person who wants to be the best basketball player or whatever. Well, but, <laughs> but, but there is something like that. I think about, um, uh, I mean, certainly I think a lot of those sports people have the idea of being, uh, they, they actually want to be the ideal competitor in a certain way. And to yeah. some extent, it doesn't matter whether they, they win. I mean, they want to win. That's actually part of being an ideal, comp- if you're in sports, having a real, uh, motivation to win is actually a key part of that, right? If you're not mm-hmm. if you're not competitive enough, you actually don't make a very good professional athlete. Um, <laughs> and I'm not competitive at all, which is why I'm having trouble imagining this. But uh, well, even I mean, we could change the analogy even just to writing that it's, that's its own. You know, yeah. I want to be the best-selling novelist. <laughs> right, as opposed to I want to write a story that is uh, that that really that really uh, turns the page, right? Mm-hmm. Or I want to write stories that show people what, uh, how great life can be here right now in, the, in 2018, right? If you, mm-hmm. can, if you can make it just a little bit more abstract, you now get some flexibility as to how to solve the problem to get there. Um, because any particular, if you have a really concrete goal, you can't always achieve that goal, right? I mean, you're a doctor, mm-hmm. I mean, you must have situations where um, the, the patient cannot be completely healed, but the patient can have a quality of life, and you need, you need some adjustment of the goal to help the patient do the best that they can. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. No, the, the big difference we face all the time in, in medicine is, you know, I might not be able to cure your disease, but I can still heal you. I can... Mm. Yeah, I like your use of heal better than the way that I used it. Right, yes. The yeah. person can go forward and, be, and have a fruitful life and live well, even though mm-hmm. they may still actually have the disease. They may need to change their lifestyle a little bit. There, there are things that may need to change, but they can still have a good life, and that matters mm-hmm. a lot. Right. Yeah. No, and, and, you know, and, fascinating topic. Yeah. So, you know, talking about, you know, managing your mind, I mean, one of the problems is you, if you get, if you have in the back of your mind some wrong premise, like, um, well, I mean, I had one of the things I had to deal with almost as soon as I switched out of engineering into psychology, I had in the back of my mind a little voice saying, you've got to be practical. You've got to be practical. You've got to be mm. practical. And it really did not seem like the most practical thing in the world to particularly when I left psychology graduate school because I realized I didn't want to be an academic and, you know, to put out my own shingle, you know, I'm not a therapist, right? I don't have a clinical degree. I, um, that's not what I'm interested in. And 
it, really the words, you know, you've got to be practical. Well, you need to deal with that. If you have some premise that makes you think that the solution needs to look in a certain way, you need to be able to bring that up. You need to be able to name it. You need to be able to challenge it. You need to be able to let it go. And that's a process. That's a, that's a skill to learn. Hmm. That's great. I, I'm intrigued by your words, managing your mind, and curious, uh, you know, what you mean by mind, because I, I, I've heard meditation talked about as thinking about thinking. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so it's interesting. it's almost like that meta level. Yeah. Huh. Oh, I, so I'm interested here that people call meditation as thinking about thinking, because to me, meditation is, I mean, to, to meditate, you definitely need to be controlling what's going on in your mind. Um, but there, what I understand is you're trying to, it's, it's like an exercise in concentration that you are, right, that, that distractions come in and you let them go because you stay focused on your breathing or on, um, yeah, I, I can't yeah. remember, there's like a technical term for what you're paying attention to. But yeah. you do need meditation. something to pay attention to, right? Meditation is really how I define it. It's just you're working on changing your state of consciousness. And so there's more than one way to do it. I guess I wasn't, mm-hmm. I realized after you spoke, I wasn't real specific, but I was thinking of mindfulness meditation. That mindfulness piece is really about watching our own thinking and, mm-hmm. and yes. taking an abstract layer away from that. So I was thinking of that, that piece of, of uh, meditation. Right, which would be sort of a self-observation of just noticing the thoughts that you have and rather than kind of, when you have a rather thought than, in the back, go ahead. Yeah, rather than feeling I am all of my thoughts. Right. As they come up, oh, I have to think about that and then this and then that and dropping above and go, oh, I don't have to follow them all. This is what my mind does. Oh, that's what my mind does when I just watch it and it just gives another layer of, uh, I don't know, you, you don't have to be as anxious about your mind if you are right. watching it work, understand it, how it works, and that it's made to keep thinking and switching and going from thought to thought. <laughs> and, and so I agree that what you're doing is you're noticing the thoughts that are occurring to you. And mm-hmm. I, would, I would make a distinction here. This is something I got from Ayn Rand uh, between the conscious and the subconscious. The, the conscious mind is the it's basically what you're aware of right now. And mm-hmm. you have volitional control over that to a large degree because you control where your attention is and you can control whether you actually act on the various impulses you have for action. So like as you said, when, when you're doing this mindfulness meditation, there's a, a certain thing you're not doing. When the, when the thought occurs to you, oh, I should get an ice cream bar, you are not jumping up and getting an ice cream bar. Even though there's a slight impulse, you kind of are waiting that out right? Mm-hmm. That's why there's a certain detachment from it. The thoughts occur to you, but you don't act on them. And you also don't um, give them the attention. Like the way when you think about something like, how am I going to uh, get to Fort Lauderdale on November 2nd? I actually need to get, I need to somehow, it's actually not November 2nd, but <laughs> next month, I need to catch a ride from Naples to Fort Lauderdale. If I don't catch a ride, I'm going to have to hire an Uber or something, to, and it'll be expensive. So, you know, I've got a problem I need to solve. Now, normally, if that thought occurred to me, I would then say, well, what could I do? Well, maybe so-and-so is going there. Maybe so-and-so is going. So, like, the, the next thought, when I think about that, I then trigger the next thought because I focus on it. I want more ideas on this. And just having said this as an example, three people who might be driving from Naples to Fort Lauderdale that day have occurred to me, and I now have an action plan. I can ask each of them, are you going? Could I catch a ride? And that's the way, when you're thinking, that's what you do. You actually follow the line of thought. You look at that thought because you want to trigger the next one. But when you're doing this mindfulness meditation, you're not acting on the impulses, but you're also not seizing the thought and asking for more. You're not turning mm-hmm. your attention to any particular thought. You're just waiting back to say, okay, that was interesting. What's next? Oh, that was interesting. What's next? You're just waiting to see what it is. And so you're using your power of choice to 
in effect, pause. It's like a big pause and just hear the thoughts that are coming up. Now, where are the thoughts coming up from? That's the subconscious. I mean, they aren't subconscious anymore because they've been triggered into awareness. But you have, you know, your memory banks, you have a tremendous amount of knowledge stored there. And it's all interconnected depending on how you thought about it in the past. And of course, the things that you care about, the values that you hold, are part of, that's a kind of the knowledge that you store. And the, whatever, this is my view of how things come up, whatever you're aware of presently in conscious awareness triggers things from the subconscious. And uh, it's helpful to recognize that what comes up is completely out of your control. What you do with it is under your control. Mm -hmm. And in, in mindfulness meditation, what you're deliberately doing is pausing and just noticing what comes up. You're not acting on it. You're not selecting any bit of it to pursue. You're just pausing and getting a little bit of that objectivity that, okay, yes, I have a choice. You're, you're basically, it's an act of reminding yourself of your own sovereign, your own sovereignty, your own power of choice. You are not your thoughts. You get to choose whether you act on a thought. You get to choose whether you believe a thought is true. Huh. And as, as you talk about that in your concept of managing your mind and that unconscious bubbling up into the conscious and then having a choice about the action, uh, how, how do you... I guess in your terminology, how do you define the word mind and thinking? Right. So uh, I would say the mind is the whole faculty of consciousness with your conscious awareness and the material that's stored in the subconscious. So the mind is that rational faculty that you have. And here I don't, I'm not saying you are rational. I'm saying you have the capacity to reason and to form concepts, which is, mm -hmm. um, you know, pretty it, 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 unique to humans to the extent that we know. So that's what I would call the mind. And it's, it's, this is what Ayn Rand called an axiomatic concept. It's, you can only sort of point at it. I mean, it's so basic to everything else we understand. The fact that you have a mind is so basic. There's right. not much more to say there in definition. Now, thinking, on the other hand, is something that you can do with your mind. And thinking is not the same as thoughts either. So uh, thinking, my definition of thinking is that it's a purposeful process of cognition, meaning that you're trying to understand. Cognition is a fancy word for trying to know, trying to actually figure things out, trying to actually get knowledge. So it's a, it's a purposeful process of cognition in which mm. you uh, access, you integrate the things you already know with fresh observations to figure out something new. So thinking is where you actually are deliberately pulling up what you know. You're, you've got a goal. You're trying to figure something out. You're seeing things. You're acting in the world. You get information there, but you're also pulling up things you already know and putting all of those together to figure out something new. Hmm, fascinating. And I'm curious, so you put that together in your company, Thinking Directions, which is mm. a great name, by the way, Thinking Directions. Thank you. Thank How did you. you come up with that, and, and what does your company do? Okay, well, interestingly, the directions part of Thinking Directions is a hat tip to F.M. Alexander. Are you at all familiar with the Alexander Technique? Uh, you know, it sounds familiar, but I, I can't bring it up. So it's, a, it's, it's not super well known. It's a, it's a body awareness method developed by this fellow named F.M. Alexander, he was, let's see, boy, I should memorize his dates. He died in around 1955. I think he was born around 1880 or 1890. Okay. And he, um, he likes to recite Shakespeare. So he was an Australian, and he would recite Shakespeare. And he had this problem that his voice would close down. And he went to the doctors and said, you know, what's wrong? And they couldn't find anything wrong. And he said, well, is it something I'm doing? And they said, I don't know, Maybe. So he went off to figure out what he was doing wrong. And the thing that he, can't, he realized is that, I'm going to say it in kind of a silly way, but you know, the hip bone is connected to the thigh bone. 
everything's interconnected. If you tense your shoulders and your neck, that will, sh- that will kind of shorten your spine, hunch your shoulders, tighten up your legs, and your lungs literally will not have any place to go when you try to inhale. That was basically what he discovered. So then the question is, and that was completely habitual. And you see, if you look, once you learn this method, if you look around, you can see people have habit patterns of how they hold themselves that definitely, he called it poor use. And if you think of someone with poor posture, you know, it's hard for them to take a deep breath because they are sort of crunched over and their muscles are so tight that it's hard for the lungs to actually expand to their full capacity. So he set out to figure out what he was doing. He decided it was all habit. So he basically developed a method for breaking your own physical habits with the goal of getting back to the natural poise that an animal has. You think about how a healthy young animal moves, or even a little baby, a little you know, two-year-old. They have such grace and poise, and that is something that you can, he figured out how to go from all crunched over to that mm, by mm-hmm. using your mind. And mm. which is really interesting to me and was very helpful to me physically. I went into it because I had uh, some neck problems uh, from carpal tunnel from bad posture. And the method, it, it's, not like, it's not like exercises. And it's, what it is is you actually learn how to in effect, conceptually control your body. So like one of the things I do, I'm going to do it right now, is I'm going to tell myself, next be free. And over a period of time, I have now learned how to let go and stop tensing the muscles in my neck. And if you do that, then you can let your head go forward and up. And so I can stop pulling the head down on the top of the spine. There should be a little gap there. Your head is supposed to be balanced on the top of your spine. This is probably familiar to you, actually. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But uh, you can do this with conscious control. And the thing that you need to understand, one of the basic premises of the method, is you need to understand the difference, the two different choices you have with the impulse to move. And he he calls them inhibition and direction. Uh, What he calls inhibition is like the pause we were talking about where you have an impulse to do something, you have an impulse to go follow that thought or an impulse to go get some ice cream, and instead you just pause. So you can have the impulse and you don't act on it. You just pause. It's not, sometimes when people say inhibition, it sounds like you should say no, but that's not what the Alexander Technique, the Alexander Technique, it's just pause. But the other thing you can do is when you are sitting there in a pause and you have no particular impulse to say, raise your arm. You can out of that say, I'm going to raise my arm. You can actually give yourself a direction to move. And when you do that from a totally, that totally neutral state, you actually move very differently and you move with a sort of natural coordination as opposed to when you move on the habitual impulse, you move with the habitual tension. And so the two volitional actions are inhibition and direction and direction. That's why directions is in thinking directions in the title of my company. It's Mm. a hat tip to Alexander that you want to be able to actually make from this grounded, uh, neutral, and objective place, you then choose what you're going to do. And that is built into, that's like the lifeblood of the whole method that I teach. It's... He's one of the big influences on me, even though he doesn't teach. He doesn't really teach thinking at all. He teaches body awareness. But yeah, no, thank I, you I, for I, bringing that memory back because I've looked at body work and movement specialists, and the name always comes up, but I, I never really looked back at his work. Thank you. Yeah, well, can I give a book recommendation on? This? Oh, please. So the I finally have found a book that explains the method in a way that I think you can understand. It's called The Actor's Secret. Oh no, I'm going to forget the name of the author. I've got to, I'm going to just quickly Google it while we're here talking. Um, oh, I know. Betsy Politan, P O L A T I N. A very interesting book. And she actually gives you little experiments you can do so you can understand the difference between like making your 
body move for versus moving it with direction. And mm. uh, very, very interesting. The first time I found a book that I think you could understand without ever having had lessons from an Alexander teacher. It's, huh. it's one of those things. It's, it's one of those things that's much easier to show than to tell. And I think she's made some real progress in making it objective. Oh, thank you. That's a great recommendation. Yeah, I, th I think you particularly would enjoy it, Joel. Yeah, I, I just pulled it up too, and I'm like, oh, fascinating. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's interesting so is this: the Alexander technique has become a required training for performance artists of all kinds. So, like my teachers, I had two teachers uh, in, when I lived in New York. And one of them taught at Juilliard in the drama division. And in Juilliard, every single student takes Alexander Technique lessons. And it's whether you're doing singing, whether you're doing acting, whether you're doing music, because you need to be able to uh, use your body and you know, have your breath regardless of, you, know, you, you need to be able to manage your body. Your body is a big part of your uh, performance. And uh, the way it was described to me, as an actor, you need to be able to play a hunchback without becoming a hunchback. Mm. You need to be able to <laughs> you know, do all these things and yet still maintain the, um, the body you know, and the, the healthy body while you're doing it. Um, so, so that's the place. It's, it's the place you find it most is in the performance arts. And then the other thing is, the thing that brought me into it is neck and back uh, injuries. That's how I, I actually read about it in an article in the New York Times talking about how do you deal with you know, problems with you know, neck and back. And this is one of the, one of the things that's well known to help with that. Ah, that's fascinating. Yeah, thank yeah. you for that. I, I, I read about it in the body work, you know, improving, like you said, neck, back, pain. Right, right, um, right. Mm -hmm. But I hadn't mm -hmm. heard of it in the performance world. And I've heard of it in the movement world as far as movement for healing where dancers do a lot of that. Makes a lot of sense. Exactly. Yes. Yes. My my Alexander teacher was originally a a professional dancer. That's how she got into the work. Yeah. I mean, I actually have had several Alexander teachers, but my number one Alexander teacher, who I had for oh fifteen years before I left New York, uh, had been a dancer and was teaching at Juilliard in the drama department. Wow. Yeah. So, so he gave you the directions part. How did you put it together with what you do now? Oh, very interesting question. Gee, is there a short answer to that? There must be. Um, let's see. Uh, you know, here's the, here's the best answer I can give to that, Joel. This, this is not the only thing. There are actually three major inter influences on me. Ayn Rand has been a huge influence. F.M. Alexander has been a huge influence. And the third really major influence is a person named Marshall Rosenberg who developed what's called nonviolent communication. And he talks about how, you know, he, it's a communication technique, but it's really about how to understand what are the big values at stake and turn, when there's something emotionally charged, how do you get to the values and get clarity about what really matters? That's how I, would, mm, okay. that's how I interpret it. And I guess what I'd say with all three of these, what I've done is I've learned tremendously from these thinkers and then they have been the context from which I've gone and I've sat at my desk and I've solved specific problems. And the problem could be, um, how do I get more done today? You know, like how do I prioritize today? I do productivity because I have this Bob Fugate image in my mind who is such a productive dynamo. Being more productive is a big value to me. And so a lot of times the problem I'd be solving is, how am I going to get this done? But as I was looking at how to solve it, I would notice, for example, uh, that I was getting tense. And I think, aha, I would think about the Alexander work, and that would show me that I, I was you know, jumping to a conclusion or something. Or I would notice an analogy to it. I would notice that um, uh, that same pause that I needed for in my body, I also needed before I uh, analyzed something. Or I would notice with, with the Ayn Rand material, you know, she has as I mentioned a lot of things on ethics. She has various principles. Like one of her things is she is uh, morally opposed to duty. The idea that you have to do something no matter what, just because it's a rule. 
She says, that's not the right way to figure out what's right and what's wrong. And so I would find myself thinking in the middle of a line. I would actually write to myself. Thinking on paper is one of the tools I use. You have to do that. I realized, hey, wait a minute. That doesn't fit with this other thing I learned. So what is the truth here? And so I really used these um, integrated bodies of knowledge I got from other people to help me understand the concrete issues I was dealing with. And it was through that, because all three of them, the th- thing that integrates Ayn Rand, Marshall Rosenberg, and F.M. Alexander, they all believe in free will, and they all believe in mind-body integration. And they all believe in uh, value, a value-oriented, positive-oriented focus. And with those three thinkers, I was able to take the things that I was doing and, in fact, rethink them all from that kind of a philosophic perspective and work out concrete solutions to concrete problems and then generalize. So that's a little bit abstract, but uh, I don't know. Is that a satisfying answer? Yeah. Can you um, uh, bring it to sort of a concrete example, like someone who's been through one of the programs that you've had? Um, Yeah, let's see. Okay, let me – I can do that. I'm sure I can do that. Let's see. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's a, I don't know if this is going to be convincing, but I'm just going to use it because it's the example that occurs to mind. So I'm, I'm rewriting some marketing copy right now, right? But everything I do, I do from the lens of how do you manage your mind? And I noticed when I first started doing it, I was, I was like resisting rewriting a copy for this course that I'm working on. And so I paused and I said, First of all, there's no duty to rewrite the copy, but of course I want to rewrite the copy. So what did that tell me? Do that said, okay, let's find out what the values are at stake. So I went and I looked at it and I realized I was actually just overloaded. There were so many things to think about. And this is one of the this is something I learned from Ayn Rand. You only have so much mental space. You need to actually conceptualize things. You need to reduce them to fit in your head. So the the thing I did is I said, okay. I am now going to give myself permission to just kind of lay out all of these things. And I made this long list. I actually have on a table in front of me, I have like eight pieces of paper that are filled up with notes from this marketing copy. And, but I did that by noticing the problem and then saying, okay, that's the way my mind works right now. So what I need right now is I need something a little easier, but then did something easier. Once I had done that, again, it was a little overwhelming. So I again, took a step and I found something that actually fit in my mind that I wanted to do. I actually color-coded the whole thing between the three things that need to go in the marketing copy. And as a result of that, I now actually really understand what needs to go in the marketing copy, but I did it in a series of layers, all of which were very um, mind-friendly, purposeful, but not uh, driven by you know, a whip or anything like that. And, and I dealt with the emotions that came up because, of course, I'd rather this had gone faster. I'd rather this had been easier. And, you know, those feelings of impatience and uh, it doesn't quite rise to self-doubt, but, you know, the negativity that can come up when something doesn't go the way you wish it would go. I, I needed to deal with all, all that as I went. And, but I have the tools to do it because I've um, translated the general principles into concrete tools that I actually used in this particular exercise. Mm, okay. I'm not uh, sure that's a perfectly convincing thing, but the bottom line is <laughs> it, it helps you be more productive without, uh, without the, the whip. Okay. And, and so uh, you mentioned that you have a thinking lab and you have video classes, teleclasses, coaching, mm-hmm. I'm assuming workshops and, and things like that. Is that what goes under the umbrella of thinking directions? That is exactly what goes under the umbrella of thinking directions. Can I mention that I have a freebie? Now, I don't know. Uh, this freebie is actually going to happen on a certain date soon from now, but it's then going to be available as a uh, Evergreen. So is there, if I mention this freebie? Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. So uh, actually, you've seen this freebie, Joel. I'm going to do the willpower versus value power. I did a talk up at Toastmasters oh, yeah. this spring. Oh, good. Yeah. 
and I, I did that. I thought, you know, that should be my new freebie because it, it uh, talks about um, this big change, this big shift that you make from feeling like I have to do it in the way if you ha- run into any productivity problem, you have to just try harder. There's a big shift from that to thinking about, well, what's the value here and how do I get that value? It's a switch from forcing yourself to do it to problem solving in a way that is uh, um, highly motivated. And it really, it really includes like a mind sh- mindset shift in it. And this is, this is the new freebie. I'm actually running this. Um, uh, I'm running this on, uh, let's see, Sunday the 21st, I think it is. Is that the Sunday? Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm currently, you know, that's on my website at thinkingdirections.com. And if anybody's interested, you know, this is the kind of thing I think you have to find out about it to see if it's what you need, if it's at your place right now. And I think that's actually a great intro to the kinds of things that I teach. Mm, okay. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so I encourage everyone to go to thinkingdirections.com, uh, T-H-I-N-K-I-N-G, thinkingdirections.com. And uh, look that up. That's a great, great uh, offering that you have there. Thanks, Joel. Um, thanks, Joel. And thanks for having actually been very helpful in the audience of a preparation for that and various kinds too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It was a great. I, I enjoyed the talk when I was there live. So I'm glad yep. that you're sharing it with others as well. Yeah. And yeah, I I enjoy the the way that you got to where you are and the fact that that one of the things I see is you you've come from this left brain nerd place to uh, into a place that is a little more fluffy, you know, the place of the artist we often think of and found some way to integrate the two, you know, found some balance. Yeah, the mind-body integration. And actually, I think thought, values, and body and action integration, it's it's really three things that need to be integrated. Mm -hmm. I guess mind, emotions, and body or thought, values, and action it's, it's, I think it's more than just two. <laughs> I think it's three. <laughs> but I think that's what people mean when they talk about mind-body integration. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and just fascinating the influences that got you there from Ayn Rand and that whole concept of free will and, all, and thinking about thinking and, your, and how it got you into applying logic and reason to the humanities. You know, I, I, like, mm-hmm. I like that that piece that you're doing there of saying, oh, you know, I can, I can use my mind to tackle some of these fluffy topics rather than... Uh, right, <laughs> rather right. Than it it, go. It, in a certain sense, I'm still an engineer. I really, I yeah. totally, I look at <laughs> psychology as an engineering problem. And that, there's a real sense, I, and I think this is true for people who change careers that the place you eventually get uses everything you've got. It uses mm-hmm. everything that you've learned because that becomes, even if it wasn't the right career, I mean, quote, unquote, the right career for me, uh, having put whatever it was, 10, 15, 10, 11 years of my life into it, you know, a big part of me was integrated around that and I developed values from that and I developed knowledge from that and that whole skill set is part of my arsenal that then goes into uh, what I am now. Hmm. Oh, that's beautiful. I, I like to think of it as nothing's ever really wasted. You know, our experiences right. yeah. become who we are in that journey. Yeah. Yeah. Grand yeah. I mean, I do. <laughs> I do wonder what would have happened if I had paid attention to what I was interested in when I was in high school, because I would have become a biologist. I'm, I loved biology in high school. I, I, I see several key places I would have made totally different decisions. But you know what? Maybe I would have wound up in psychology after all. Biology is not so far from psychology when it's just right down from it. That's true. So, That's true. Who knows? Who knows? So. Well, I think you've got, given our listeners lots to think about and lots to you know, munch on. I, are there any uh, last tips or last things you want to say for the audience out there? Uh, I, I, guess, I guess I'd like to end with this. You know, your mind is really precious. And learning how to take care of it in a respectful way is, 
it repays itself in dividends. It's like, it's like an act of self-esteem. You are esteeming mm. yourself when you take your mind seriously and you learn what it needs and you give it what it needs so that you can live your life. Mm. Oh, thank you. Your mind is very precious. Mm. Thank you. Yes, yes. So well, thanks for having me on, Joel. I really enjoyed talking with you and your questions drew me out in a way I, you know, I got a fresh perspective on what I've done from just your questions, so I appreciate that. Well, thank you, and thank you for sharing who you are. You know, I appreciate that. So, again, thank you, and for everyone out there, it's my guest today is Jean Maroney, and you can find her online at thinkingdirections.com. That's thinkingdirections.com. And thank you, everyone, for listening today. For people of passion and purpose, doing interesting things, living the present moment, I'm Dr. Joel Ying, and stay tuned for more from livingthepresentmoment.com. Have a great day.